You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Let me be another person to say uh, good morning and glad to be alongside and worship this morning. We're going to be uh, continuing in our sermon series in First and Second Kings today in Second Kings chapter 2. Uh, we're talking about faith among the faithless. That's on page 307. If you're using those hardcover Bibles that are on the, in the Bibles or under the chairs around you, um, but you can make your way to 2 Kings chapter 2, and we'll be there in just a moment. I think one of the greatest uh, endings to any movie of all time comes in The Godfather Part 1. Okay, it's among the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion, and because it's a historically significant and brilliant piece of cinema, uh, and also a personal favorite of mine, as you know now, I once hosted a group of college students uh, who had never seen it before. They came over, they watched it with myself and my wife, Abby. Uh, part one, Godfather Part One and Godfather Part Two. Now, Part Three doesn't exist. Don't ever look that up. Don't look that up. It's not part of it, okay? Part One, Part Two, they combine to make about six hours uh, long of a movie, so it's not short. Uh, we were just watching Godfather Part One, and one of the students fell asleep during the movie. And if you watch movies with me, I have movie rules, Okay, one of them, I think any normal movie rule would be don't fall asleep during the movie, but truly every part of the movie is so important, right? So there's no talking when you watch movies with me. Come on, don't talk during the movie and pay attention. He fell asleep, right? And I just threw a tissue box across the room to wake him up and said, pay attention, this is happening. That has nothing to do with the sermon. It's just a funny memory of mine watching that. But if you haven't seen the movie, here's a fast summary, okay, of the end of Godfather Part 1. Okay, it's the middle of the 20th century. And Don Corleone, the leader of the Corleone Mafia family okay, in New York City, has died. All right, chaos has ensued as the other mob families wage war against one another, and it's uncertain if the Corleone family will survive. All right, but they do survive, and it's the unassuming and unexpected youngest son of Don Corleone, Michael Corleone, that rises to become the new godfather. All right, and at the end of the movie, Michael secures his power by sending his henchmen out to assassinate all of his biggest rivals at the same time. Right, and he enacts vengeance against his hated brother-in-law, Carlo. All right, now, Carlo's murder right, is the special focus in the dramatic final two minutes of this movie. Right, and hysteric accusation is made against Michael by his sister, who was married to Carlo, right? Hysteric accusation made the tension is high, and Michael's own wife demands to know if it's true that Michael really did assassinate Carlo. And Michael agrees to answer the question, right? He does so calmly and to the delight of his wife. He says, no, no, he didn't do it, right? But it's a lie, right? He lies to her in that moment, okay? And moments later, after following that lie, the drama continues to stay high. A most famous scene, all right, of his inner circle of loyalists kissing his hand, calling him the new godfather, and the door closes on his wife, Kay, as she's looking inside, and that's the end of the movie, right? Super dramatic. Michael is now in total authority as the godfather. He is feared by his friends and his foes alike, and if you're not with the Corleone family, you're against them. And to be with them is to pledge allegiance to the Godfather. All right, what did it mean to pledge allegiance to the Godfather? It meant putting your faith in his power and his plan, his authority, right? And whatever he thought was the best way to accomplish whatever he wanted to accomplish. 
And that scene came to mind for me in the recent weeks preparing to preach today on 2 Kings 2, because this chapter of Scripture tells us a lot about the power and the plan of God. In the days of Elijah and Elisha, there was a war raging, a war between the one true God, the God of Israel, and those faithful to him, and false gods and their pagan followers. Baal is the primary foe of God during this time, as we've seen. Right? And the question that everyone must answer is this, in whose power and whose plan will you put your faith? Whose authority is true, God's or Baal's? And whose plan will lead not only to a blessed and fruitful life, but also an eternity of peace and reconciliation with the one true God? Elijah and Elisha put their faith in the power and plan of God. That is what God entrusted to them, and that is what they are entrusting to the people. That is the story that's unfolding, and chapter 2 here helps us to see it. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep it quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, and the sons of the prophets who were there at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to one side and to the other, so the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak of Elijah Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men, Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon the mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. 
They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation in the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he, then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please bow your heads as I pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Give us discernment as we study it. May we learn of your great power and your great plan. May you increase our faith in you. You are a great God who is holy and knowable, and we love you. Amen. Okay, I know that was quite a finish to the end of the chapter, right? I read it for a little bit. It's a long chapter, and maybe some of you stopped paying attention, then all of a sudden at the end you're like, wait, what just, what just happened there with the bears? Okay, we'll get there in a moment as if Elijah going up into heaven wasn't enough of a story to cover. Okay, we'll get to the bear story as well. Okay, but let's consider the entire chapter to see God's power and God's plan and how it's unfolding for us even in 2 Kings 2. We'll look at each separately, God's power and God's plan, and then at the end we'll conclude by looking at the big picture. Okay, so first, God's power. 2 Kings 2 opens with Elijah, uh, someone on a farewell tour to visit schools of the prophets. These are places of worship and the training of men of God. He probably had a major role in forming these schools. And these schools were established in cities that were chiefly of false religion and idol worship. Elijah is visiting these schools one last time, likely calling them to stand firm for the work that lies ahead. And everybody knows there is work that lies ahead. Israel is a nation in total spiritual decline. Right? And the prophets and the sons of the prophets are being trained to lead them back to God. There should be no doubt, though, that the charge to them is not to rely on their personal qualifications and authority, but on the power of God. We can know this because in the transition of prophetic authority, a most significant shift from Elijah to Elisha, both Elijah and Elisha put their faith in the power of God. Consider Elisha first. When asked what Elijah would give to him, Elisha doesn't ask for any last-minute tips and tricks from his mentor, right? Rather, he asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, right? The request of the double portion echoes the law in Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, where fathers are instructed to give to their firstborn a double portion of all that he has. And it says there, for the firstborn is the firstfruits of his strength. Elisha wants an inheritance, right? And not one of land and money and possessions as if that would bring security. No, instead, he wants an inheritance of the Spirit of God as, the, as a son of God would receive. 
He wants to be faithful to God's calling and God's authority just as he's seen Elijah be. And think of Elijah then. He doesn't just grant Elisha's request, but defers the decision to God himself. He knows his spirit is not his to give because it doesn't come from him. right? It comes from God. He has put his faith in the power of God, and this plan of succession will now come by God's power, God's authority alone. And after their transition, okay, when it's just Elisha, we see Elisha rerouting his authority completely in God's power. In verses 13 to 14, when Elisha picks up Elijah's coat, he doesn't believe the coat is the source of authority. As a king would maybe think his authority rests in his signet or his crown or his title, he doesn't even want a title. right? He doesn't want that authority because it comes from him. He believes it belongs to him only if God would grant it to him. So instead, he asks, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, when he picks up that coat? It's not the coat. It's the power from God. right? And he is calling upon God. And God delivers to him the spirit of authority. And by God's power, he then parts the Jordan just as Elijah had previously done. The sons of the prophets who saw this new power move from Elijah to Elisha. And they also knew, and Elisha knew, and we know that the power comes from God. Their faith was in the power of God and nothing and no one else. And the lesson for us here is at least twofold. Okay, first... It's to affirm the power of God is real. Because that's what this story shows us. It is real. God's power is real. No one else's power is real. God's is. Okay, So we have to affirm that power is real. The second is this, to put our faith actually in it. To put our faith in the power of God. Because you can believe it's real, but not you put your faith in it. Okay, The prophets of Baal that saw the power of God, they said, wow, that God has real power. But they didn't put their faith in it. We have to do both. Elijah and Elisha are models even for us. In this. And let me expound in one way how Elisha specifically in this chapter is a model for us. Before the miraculous power of God worked out of him, Elijah asked that question Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? This question, I think, is instructive for us. And I think he's a model for us in this that it's okay to ask where God is. This passage doesn't tell us that Elisha was doubting God necessarily. But when he asked that question, he was probably a little uncertain as to the answer. Right? He surely had confidence in God, but he was probably a little unsure if God would show up and how God would show up. I mean, think about it. When we first met Elisha, he left his family and his farm to apprentice for Elijah. And he went all in on that, for sure. But since he left and joined Elijah... Okay, from that moment on, seemingly every day, he's probably been fearing for his life because the most powerful people in the nation want to kill Elijah and probably want to kill him too. Right? He also knows he's the unpopular voice in a pagan nation that is at war with God. There is a certain amount of fear that he is always living with, trusting in God, but at the same time wondering where God is going to show up. And now Elijah is gone, right? His mentor is gone. And despite of all of his confidence in God's power, he asks God, where is he? Right? Where is he going to be? And that can be a real question for us in our lives too. Asking it doesn't mean that we don't trust God. Right? In the midst of addiction, depression, loneliness, discouragement, disappointment, anxiety, 
persecution, fear, shame, anger, even doubt itself at times, right? And much more. We can cry out to God, where are you? Where are you? And we can also then trust in the power of God that by God's power, an answer will come. The same way it came for Elisha. Where are you, God? Right here. We don't always get it in the timeline we want. We don't get it in the same way that Elisha got it. But God is with us. And we can ask that question even in trust. Right? So affirm the power of God and also put your faith in the power of God. And even as you ask that question. Let's do that actually with each other in this community. Right? Let, don't, let, don't let my words be the where that stops. We need to be a people that ask that question and then share with someone else that you're asked that question of God. That you're angry at God or you're frustrated, you're just discouraged. Whatever that may be, I think that's a common experience probably for all of us. And if it's not, I'd love to meet you and ask questions about how that's not an experience of yours. Okay, so in community, we need to do that with each other. So more could be said there, more work for us to do with each other in asking that question even as we trust in God's power. All right, but let's move on to the second point, faith in God's plan. All right, faith in God's plan. Two components of God's plan we see here in this chapter, to judge and to save. I'll start with the judging. I talked about the power of God being central to the transition from Elijah to Elisha. And that great power was certainly on display in the awe-inspiring events of chariots from heaven swooping down to bring Elijah into heaven. Right? That's powerful. Right? That's might of God on display. Right? But in context, it's actually much more too. It's also about God's judgment. Okay, remember, the war between God and Baal is the backdrop of this time period. It is raging on as the people are living in idolatry, even after Elijah mocked Baal and God embarrassed Baal and his prophets on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. Remember Mount Carmel? Right? The God contest, as we called it a couple weeks ago. Right? Elijah mocks Baal and God judges Baal. His authority is not real. His power is not real. Mine is. Okay, that was judgment when God showed up with that fire from heaven. And this is judgment here again in 2 Kings 2. And it was not lost on the people. Okay? Baal was the storm god and the fertility god. As some have said of him, looking back in history, the god of rain and the god of grain. That's where people trusted in Baal. And he was the one who was called the one who rides the clouds. Satan and his demons, they love to take the truth of God and twist it and corrupt it for their own purposes. And this is an example. Because it's God, Yahweh, who Scripture describes as riding on the clouds with great power and great glory. Remember, it was the cloud and smoke that led Israel and fought on their behalf at the Red Sea. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says in Isaiah 66, For behold, the Lord will come with in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. In Psalm 104, it says, Bless the Lord. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. In Daniel 7 and throughout the New Testament, Jesus is prophesied as the one who rides on the clouds. A lot of those verses, they sound really similar when you put them up against each other. Here's a summary just from Matthew 24. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. 
And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And lest we are ever prone to think of God and Christ resting gently on fluffy clouds with the little baby angels all flying around them. Okay, Revelation tells us that he who rides on the clouds is coming in divine battle. Revelation 1 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Hear that? Baal is not the rider of the clouds. Right? That false god was judged on Mount Carmel, and he was judged again here in the taking of Elijah. And his father, Satan, will be judged finally at the coming of that Son of Man, Jesus Christ. God is meaning to insult Baal in the way that he takes Elijah. It is judgment on him. And 2 Kings 2 even foreshadows that judgment with a present judgment, right, in the final verses and that bear story. Okay, that is a present judgment that we see that foreshadows the future judgment of all idolatry. And this is a striking story, right? I get that. And at first it can seem to make little sense or be a little extreme. It may not also be the story you first read to your children when you introduce them to God at bedtime or the one you want to share with an unbeliever. The first time we tell you about God's love, turn to 2 Kings 2. You might not go there, okay? But it's ultimately about God's judgment, on sin, and context is really helpful. Let's roll through a couple pieces here. Okay, first, piece of context here. The kids who come out to mock Elisha are probably of teenage years, maybe even older. Okay, the translation of small boys in the ESV as we read, it's a little misleading. Right? The Hebrew phrase that's used there, it's two Hebrew words combined together to make one phrase. Okay, that's used elsewhere in Scripture. Here's a few instances. It's used in Exodus to describe baby Moses, okay? Literal, newborn baby Moses placed in the reeds. Okay, it's used to describe Moses there. It's also used to describe young man Absalom. Okay, in 2 Samuel, Absalom is King David's son who himself become king someday. He's of, he's of age where he is now being trained in the court, and it's used to describe him as a young man. So you see the discrepancy there. It's a phrase that's also used in the Old Testament, different places, to describe a servant, an armor bearer, a king's official, and even in Second or First Samuel two, a priest in training, right? Which is kind of significant, even for our context, maybe. Okay, that's interesting. Even as we consider the second piece of context, it's taking place at Bethel. Okay, where previously the rebellious king Jeroboam, okay opposite God, opposing God, set up a shrine to false gods. This is at the heart of pagan worship. It's filled with idolaters who have contempt for God and for God's prophet and probably a whole bunch of priests in training that are opposed to God as well. Okay, third piece of context, their, mic, their mocking of Elisha is not primarily because of his bald head, right? But of his faithfulness to Yahweh, right? Elijah was taken up into heaven, and these boys, whatever age they were, they heard about that story, they knew of that story, and they treated it with contempt. Right? They were mocking him to insult him. Right? Go up, you bald head, go up is more like fly away, right? show us your so-called God power. They were insulting him. It's a little bit like when Jesus was on the cross, 
And people yelled up to him, insulted him, and said, you can save others, but you can't save yourself. Think about that as the insult. That's at the heart of what they're saying in mocking Elisha and mocking Elisha's God. Okay? And if he was short, they would have just called him shorty. Right? He just happened to be bald, they called him baldy. Okay? All right? The judgment on them for this is what God even warned of in Leviticus 26. There it says, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you. I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. I shall execute vengeance for the covenant. It's a gruesome story, is it not? Right, But this judgment of God was a righteous one, even as it was gruesome. And it was also meant to stir the people awake to their idolatry and their sin. And God brings that judgment only after he first warned about it in his word. God gives his word first, and if people don't follow his word, there is a consequence for that in God's judgment. That's the plan of God's judgment on display. Judgment of Baal and judgment of an idolatrous people. So what about his plan to save? A lot of judgment, right? What about his plan to save? We see that too, right? Along with judgment, all right, actually, in both the person of Elisha and the work of Elisha, okay? Elisha as a person is himself the embodiment of both of these elements of God's plan, to judge and to save, right? Every prophet is probably both of these things. Right? Every prophet is judging the people by calling them to repent of their sin and telling them the way to be saved. But Elisha is unique in his embodiment of these things. We first heard of Elisha, before we met him, we first heard of him in 1 Kings 19, when God told Elijah of two kings he was to anoint, Hazael over Syria and Jehu over Israel, and one prophet he was to anoint, Elisha. Dr. Andrew Satch calls these three men referenced here the Assassin's Three, right? Because God said of these three men, He said, And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. God is going to punish with death the worshipers of Baal. And 7,000, it tells us in 1 Kings, and 7,000 of Israel who have been faithful to Him will survive. Faithful to God will survive. And Elisha is the last of these assassins three that is named, right? So when he shows up, okay, we should read expecting him to bring intense judgment. And of course, as a prophet of God, we just read, he did bring some judgment, right? 42, 42 young boys judged in this chapter of alone. Okay, he brings some death and judgment. But he also saves. And we see this in verses 19 through 22. <clears throat> Jericho has been under a curse since the days of Joshua. Joshua cursed the one who would relay the foundations of the city and rebuild the gates. And Hiel of Bethel did both of these things unwisely. Right? He lost both his firstborn son and another son because he did these things. And there seems now to be a complete curse also on the land and the water. And now Elisha restores the land with a new bowl and salt. And there's rich significance in this account. Elisha uses a new bowl. Nothing previous could be credited with this miracle. This is something new being done. Right? He also uses salt, which reflects the salt of the covenant commanded by God for offerings in Leviticus. The salt was a seasoning, 
And it represented the setting apart of something for sacrifice to God. This restoration of the land is a literal undoing of a curse and the setting aside of a new creation to be used by God. That is the work of God saving. Does it sound familiar? Right? That's the work of God saving. And it's a picture of the great work that God is doing as part of his plan to save a cursed people and a cursed creation. Elisha is faithful to the plan of God. And in his faith, he is being used by God to carry out the plan itself. And that is instructive for us. And as we close, I want to have us take a big step back and see the big picture of God's plan. Because I think the more we see it, the more we can put our faith in God's power and in God's plan. This transition from Elijah to Elisha is historical fact, right? It's everything we read about in this account. Our God is a God of truth, and facts are what we therefore find, okay? But our God is also a brilliant storyteller, okay? He is powerful enough to have the story be written and end the way that he wants, and he is unfolding his plan of judgment and saving in a story that we can see, So look at the people in this Old Testament story, of which we're just looking right now today at one chapter, okay? Elijah was a prophet who was identified by the garment of hair he wore as a cloak and the leather belt that he wore around his waist. We just learned about that in the previous chapter, 2 Kings chapter 1. That's how Ahab knew that it was Elijah, because of what he wore, what he looked like, okay? He called the people to turn from their evil ways, to repent and to believe in the one true God. And before he left, his spirit was given to Elisha, whose name means the Lord saves. The power of God in him was confirmed at the river Jordan, where the waters parted. Elisha was a prophet who came both to judge and to save. Many years later, another prophet called the people to repent. His name was John the Baptist. And he wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, Scripture tells us. Before his ministry ended, he baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. And there, the river didn't open, but heaven opened. And the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus. He came not just to judge and to save, but as the judge and the Savior. For even his name means Savior. More so than Elisha did, he would break the curse of sin and death. And he would make possible the new creation of every person who puts their faith in the power and plan of God. Do you see the story that God is unfolding before us in history? Do you see how we're a part of God's story? It's awesome to see when you see it. See God's power. See God's power and God's plan in these verses in 2 Kings. See the story that God is unfolding. Even as chapter 2 ends, see that it ends with Elisha climbing back up Mount Carmel, returning to the place where God cast his judgment on evil and was victorious over Baal. Think of that even as we come to the table in a moment, to remember what God did on Mount Calvary, where Jesus, the Savior, took upon himself the judgment of God for our evil and was victorious over sin and death. That is the power 
of God on display. That is the plan that God is unfolding. And we Christians, right, we who put our faith in the power and plan of God alone are the new creations set apart. Reconciled to God now and reconciled to God forevermore. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads as I pray for us. God, you alone have the power to make your plan unfold. There is no one else, there is nothing else that has power in all of your creation. You have all authority. And it is by your plan that we are saved. We thank you for sending Christ as the Savior, as our Redeemer, to take the judgment that was due to us upon himself, to restore us, to judge sin and still restore us to you, our God. Our faith is in you. Receive our praise. Receive our faith. Thank you for saving us from sin's guilt and sin's power. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.